time to take the edge off with the Edge Agency. Pour yourself a glass of wine, kick back and relax while we ask the tough questions and get down to the nitty gritty of being a business owner. Welcome to Take the Edge Off podcast brought to you by the Edge Agency. I'm your co-host, Alex Radford. And I'm your co-host, Lindsay Hogan. We're here with attorney, author, and activist, David Windicher. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm excited to be here, ladies. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share with your audience a little bit about my testimony and what I do for work. Yeah, we're so excited to hear it. So just so our listeners have a little bit of background, when I was in corporate America, I was the president of the National Association of Professional Mortgage Women. And it was my job to make sure that we had speakers every month. So about three years ago, maybe is when David and I first met Right. and he spoke for our group and everybody loved it. And one of the questions he asked was like, should I filter myself or should I not filter myself? And we all talked about it and we were like, just be raw and real and who you are. And so here we are again. He's asking me the same question. <laughs> how, much, how much can I say? And we said, just be raw and be you. So and- if you have children and you're in a car right now, maybe put their headphones on because yes. you never know what's going to come out of our mouths. Or the volume. I really don't have a filter and I just try to speak. Uh, transparently and I don't try to hurt people's feelings or um, say things that could be offensive, but I just try to speak my truth. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, there was your disclaimer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You heard it. You were warned. Um, So a little bit about David prior to becoming a criminal defense attorney, David was an impoverished minority in Miami. He was arrested 13 times. Yes. That's right. And spent seven months in juvie dropping out of high school, mm-hmm. correct? And then got into the world of gangs to make a living in Miami, correct? Survive, basically. To survive. Mm-hmm. And then it took a turn um, and his rehabilitation process kind of came about. You got your GED mm-hmm. at some point, kind of started turning things around. Since then, you have your law degree mm-hmm, that's and correct. you own a law firm right? and you're now a criminal defense attorney. Naturally. Right. <laughs> Trying to go back and fix kind of like what happened to you and help pull people out of that place. Mm-hmm. And so since then he's got the law firm. He also wrote a book called the American dream about his story and has launched a nonprofit called red, which was my nickname as a gangster. Oh. For obvious reasons, Obviously, yeah. Uh, people he's a redhead, like, right? <laughs> and he's all tatted up too. I know you guys can't see him, but he's got red hair and um, all tatted up to so cover up the scars. <laughs> um, we'll get into that. So, um, yeah, you know, I that's a that's really a synopsis of my life between the ages of eleven and nineteen were my darkest years. Where most kids are just kind of doing what kids do. I was just trying to survive a very difficult environment. Got arrested at eleven for uh, retail theft. So I wasn't able to apply for the jobs that most kids are applying for at the age of 15 or 16. So I had to figure out how to make ends meet. Um, At the age of 13, I witnessed my first murder. I was getting jumped all the time because of the neighborhood I lived in. And so at 14, I asked to be jumped into a gang. From the ages of 14 to 16, I really got wrapped up in that living because it was giving me the protection that I needed. It helped me survive because it was teaching me about how to make money, um, in creative fashion. And when I was 16, I dropped out. By the time I was 19, I had been 
shot. I've been stabbed. I've been arrested 13 times. And I spent, like you said, almost eight months incarcerated. So it was a it was a bit of a different upbringing for me, not because my parents weren't there or because they were um, not involved in my life. It was the opposite. It was just I lived in a lower socioeconomic environment that was just dangerous, if I could name it one thing. Yeah. What were you stealing when you were 11? Um, so you have to get the book so I can give you the whole story. <laughs> I think you've read it, so you know. But what was interesting was, so we had one bicycle, and my brother and I couldn't tow each other on the bicycle because it had a strip gooseneck, so you couldn't tighten the handlebars so they would pivot backwards and forwards. There was a big football game going on several miles away from the, the school we went to, and so I told my brother, wait for me here. I'm going to go get a set of pegs so I can put them on the back of the bicycle and tow you to the, to the park so we can play in this game. And then I went to the, uh, the bicycle store. I walked in and it was not something that I expected to happen. But obviously, you if you're a ginger, uh, you get a little bit peachy or, you know, a little pink when you're nervous. So I walked in. I'm already pink. And the guy says to me, how can I help you? I didn't say a single word. So it must have piqued his, yeah. his suspicion about me. I grabbed the set of pegs that I first saw, shoved them in my pocket, got on my bike and started pedaling like the wind. But not thinking it through, obviously, if you want to pedal fast on your bike, you got to stand up and stroke the pedal. Mm -hmm. Well, as soon as I stood up and started striking the pedal, the handlebar went forward. I came crashing off the bike. And as soon as I hit the ground, I thought I got hit by a car because I'm right back up. And it's because the owner of the bicycle store, who was actually a triathlete, was in hot pursuit, unbeknownst (laughs) to me. And so he tells me, you little effing crook, you're going to go to jail. And and it was true. I mean, they sent me to jail. Mm They put me in front of a judge and they adjudicated me delinquent and put me on probation. So at 11 years old, I was on probation, having to do community service hours, having to do theft deterrent programs. And for a kid that was having a hard time coping with poverty, that experience um, made things much more psychologically difficult. I felt um, that it was all my fault and my parents didn't deserve this because I was getting straight A's in schools. I just didn't. um, Nothing would have told them that this was coming their way. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. So, I mean, you're obviously good at overcoming challenge because you've gone from that place to where you're at now. So how do you today in your business and you're an author, you have a business, you have a nonprofit. I mean, what, what was it that kind of was that turning point for you and how do you use it now in your business as far as like, okay, we're having a problem and now I need to stop, change it, fix it. Sure. Like, Yeah, I love that question because um, there was a few catalysts in my life. Specifically, it was three things. Um, I was the oldest of four. And as they say, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. I wanted to help my parents out of poverty. I wanted to help my brothers and sisters have basic essentials. And so I did things to generate income that were considered criminal, even though I felt like they were necessary. Um, So seeing my brothers and sisters take after me, given that I was giving them the wrong example, broke my heart. And that was one of the catalysts. Um, I met a girl named Nicole, who there's a chapter in the book dedicated to her. For whatever reason, this woman believed in me. And she told me I needed to stop being stupid, start making better decisions. And after my last arrest is when we met. And she told me, if you help me understand, she wanted to be a police officer. So she said to me, if you help me understand the things that I need to understand, that they don't teach you in college about criminal activity, street gangs, breaking into cars. I'll tutor you. I'll help you get your GED. I'll help you get into college. And uh, it was um, it was moving for me because I never realized that people actually would help each other out in that way. The neighborhood I 
grew up in, people don't um, lend the hand that often, unfortunately. Then the other one was um, God, my strongest resource. I, um, I gave my life to him towards the end of my criminal behavior. And during the entire time where I was being uh, a criminal, I would think God can't be real. I was not atheist. I was agnostic more than anything, simply because I used to think that there would be a higher power. But if God was it, he had a really bad sense of humor for putting anybody in the position that we were in. And I remember waking up in a cold sweat um, months after my first, my last arrest, years actually, excuse me, and um, thinking to myself, you know, dude, if you're real, the time to show up is now because I, I can't do this on my own anymore. I, um, I was going through some stuff where um, there was issues with my family because of the things that I was doing. Nicole and I had split up. We had been together for four years and I was she had helped me get into college at that point in time. But she got an internship with the same police department that deployed a helicopter on me several years ago, several years back. A helicopter had never caught me. So I was a fugitive at large. I had to turn himself in. And I realized, you know, there's a real thing in this world called blackballing. You see it now, for example, like the Kaepernick situation. He takes a knee so he can't play for any team. And I knew that if people realized that Nicole and I were together, you know, they would not let her climb the runs of the police department. So we split up. But it happened to be the year where she's about to graduate and I'm about to enter college. And um, I remember waking up on my birthday in 2001 in a cold sweat and thinking, you need to show up or I'm done with you because I can't do this on my own anymore. And I went to church, a church called Annunciation. And I went there because I didn't want people to realize that I didn't know how to pray or I never bent a knee or anything like that. I, I always um, realized that, that that church was empty. So I went there and I dropped down to my knees and I, you know, tearfully asked God for forgiveness for all of the difficult things that I was doing, the people that I hurt and I asked him for purpose. And little by little, he started showing up in my life and I would um, defer to him when I needed strength. And then that's just kind of little how things happen. Little by little, I developed momentum. And next thing you know, um, here I am. Love that. Isn't it crazy? Like when you were 11, you had someone speak over you and say you're a criminal mm -hmm. and you believed it. And then you had someone speak over you and say, no, actually you're better than this. It's like so important what you say mm -hmm. to others and speak over their lives. Yes. Do you do that? Do you, are you conscientious of that now? Oh, absolutely. Everyone? You know, the, that's a great uh, comment, Lindsay, because here's the reality. Kids are who you tell them they are mm -hmm. when they're impressionable and they haven't developed cognitively yet. Mm -hmm. You know, you tell you say to an 11 year old, you're a criminal. He's going to act out like a criminal. But if you tell him he's a genius, he's going to try to build you a rocket. Mm -hmm. And that's just the unfortunate circumstance of our criminal justice system. We were I was being arrested during the height of the get tough on crime movement. So they were trying to lock everybody up. I wasn't an exception. Poverty wasn't an exception, even though you shouldn't incarcerate people because they're impoverished yeah but so yeah it's it's true you know people are what you tell them they are mm -hmm. especially when they're that young and for years that's why i became who i was the system told me i'm a criminal they put me on probation and i couldn't get a job at 15 or 16 a retail job because i have this theft conviction yeah and so it was what it was i was what they they told me i was i was an immigrant i came from argentina you know there was nothing that was happening that was making me feel like i belonged it was yeah. the opposite so now I, I realize the psychological effects that you have on impressionable people. And in our program, 
we teach emotional intelligence in a way that helps them evolve to be strong in that sense. Is there anything that you do daily for yourself as far as that like positive self-talk or is it just Bible time, quiet time daily, Mm -hmm. or is there anything specific that you do to keep that up? Yes. Um, I pray every day. I have, I do devotionals in the morning. I talk to God throughout the day and, uh, it's my most important relationship. I never, uh, waver. And even when things are a little bit challenging, whatever season I'm going through, I have always stuck to my guns with that. He helped me get out. And so I always go to him. I defer, I, you know, you know I don't want to sound like I'm some kind of superhuman, but I have no fear, no doubt, no worry, because I know he's in control. And the way he stays in control is if I ask him to guide me. So every day I ask him to guide me. Humility and surrender. Yes, surrender. That's such a big deal. Mm -hmm. Most people have a hard time because they think that their will is going to exceed whatever he has planned for you. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's actually the opposite. There's much more um, purpose behind his will. And there's a much bigger reward for you if you just follow his lead. Mm -hmm. I feel like so many business owners are like, going by these books that they're reading and not there's amazing things out there obviously Mm -hmm. but i feel like you're just on such a different path like your own path is that Mm -hmm. true are you like learning from other business owners are you is it kind of a mixture you know what i mean sure i don't have any corporate role models or anything like that because capitalism is great Mm -hmm. one of the best things about america but capitalism and greed there's a fine line between the two and i don't like organizations that lack socially responsible cultures and a lot of companies have those issues so i don't really look up to corporations or ceos or cfos frankly speaking i've done whatever i wanted my entire life and it's always to do the right thing it's never been like i'm going to follow this this roadmap that somebody else you know if i'm going to follow in someone else's footsteps i'm going to follow in the greatest footsteps ever left on earth right and so to me, um, I don't really look up to anybody running a huge corporation. Yeah. It's fantastic for them. It's great that they're able to do those things and they provide uh, a living for all the people that they employ. But um, those are not my role models. Yeah. That's why everything you do is so unique because it's very authentic, I feel like, from yourself. Well, thanks. Figure. I appreciate that. I, I think, you know, what it's actually... So the hardest thing that we do is try to explain what recidivism is to people, oh, right? Yeah. Being a criminal defense attorney to me is fun and I enjoy it. I love it. I help one person at a time. But reforming the criminal justice system is a big deal because what what people don't realize is recidivism affects everybody, not just the person incarcerated or being touched by the criminal justice system or on probation. It affects taxpayers just the same because if the cycle is cyclical, and the result is this same inevitable result that we've had for decades, we're not doing something. We're not investing in the system properly. Now we have a term called restorative justice. And restorative justice is a rehabilitative educational forum for nonviolent offenders that substitutes the historical traditional method of prosecution, which is punitive split sentences, split sentences being a, a term of incarceration with probation. Well, you know, that doesn't really help someone with a mental health disorder. It doesn't help somebody that stole because they're impoverished. It doesn't help someone that has an academic deficiency and can't fill out a job application. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes what I do unique is that we're trying to 
create reform in the system that puts people in a position to self-actualize based on their situation. The system has historically said, this person broke the law, well, we're going to punish them. Well, one size fits all is not the way to operate in the criminal justice system. You have to do a case-by-case analysis. And it sounds sappy, but there's no such thing as a life beyond redemption. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. Unless you're a violent individual. You murder, you rape, you need to be locked up. Mm-hmm. You know, but you you stole because you don't know better. You you do drugs because you have a, a mental health disorder from a, a dependency that was created by a car accident or an injury. Those are things. If we continue to try to arrest our way out of that, it's going to be the taxpayers that end up suffering the most. Mm-hmm. So red is your charity, and this is what this is like the mission of the charity, right? Yes. To like raise awareness about all mm-hmm. of this. That's correct. So what? tools do you use? Like, I know you go to prisons and talk mm-hmm. to people and coach. Is that, yes. is that like the mm-hmm. tools that you're, you're doing to? Absolutely. So I, this is what we've done. We've, we've been in, it's hard to say we've been in business because there's no money in nonprofit, but we've been operating for four years now. The first year, what I did was I went everywhere throughout the state of Georgia and I would sit down and evaluate or review or analyze the type of diversion programs, diversion being the alternative to prosecution. In 2012, Governor Deal set up what's called the Georgia Special Counsel on Criminal Justice Reform. This is a bipartisan interbranch panel of people on the three branches researching how to reduce crime, how to reduce recidivism, how to be better at prosecuting offenders, um, which is a term I hate using anyway, offenders. But, um, you know, trying to see what they were doing helped me understand what they were doing wrong. And so we engineered a 12-month curriculum that is the functional equivalent of an associate's degree in the courtroom. So we created college in the courtroom. We do social, civic, financial literacy. So during the program, what we do is we orient them and we tell them, look, prosecution in this type of a case takes about four years. So if you stay in our program and you graduate, you will have your case uh, dismissed and expunged. Expunge is no longer a term, but it's called restricted. So we incentivize them to do these things so that your case is dismissed. You get your life back. Then the second month, we do a level of service intake so that we can understand the individual. We try to get to know Lindsay. We try to get to know Alex. And we understand what you need in life in order to fulfill the dreams that you have about yourself, right? Or to reach the goals that you have. So once we learn the individual, in the third month, we assign a mentor to them someone that glad hands them through the rest of the process. Then we start implementing the module, social, civic, financial literacy. We start with social. And the reason social is important is you guys probably know this, that once you reach a certain level of intelligence quotient, you can no longer exceed that level. So your IQ plateaus, but what doesn't plateau is your EQ, your emotional intelligence. Oprah, for example, is one of the most emotionally intelligent or aware people you'll ever meet. That's why she's so good at interviewing people because she can relate on their level, understand is a good listener. Emotional intelligence, anger management, self-control, these kind of things help people maneuver their way out of being hijacked when a stressful situation encounters them. And when you're going through the criminal justice system, the majority of people are coming out of the lower socioeconomic environment and they're in violent environments, environments that I understand. And so we teach them how to manage those difficult situations. Once we teach them how to control themselves, we start teaching them the things that help them understand that their voice matters. For example, a civic literacy. That is 
the constitutional rights that they have, the Bill of Rights, and we try to teach them the Bill of Rights. So that way, when they are engaging an officer during a stop or during, you know, a warrant execution or whatever the case may be, we teach them how to assert their rights without being defensive or threatening to the police officer. We understand that there's rogue police officers out there and things will happen, but we try to teach these individuals, don't fight the case on the spot. Do the things that will help you establish a record that shows that you weren't doing anything wrong. So we teach them how to assert their rights. Then we do the the Voting Rights Act. We help them understand the importance of their voice being heard through a ballot. So voting helps. The example would be the best example we have that we teach our kids is Keisha Lance Bottoms is now the mayor in Atlanta. Well, she was elected over her her competition by a I think it was like less than a thousand votes. Right. So she gets into office and signs an executive order for bail reform. That means that if you got arrested, hypothetically speaking, because hypothetically. St- <laughs> hypothetically, a lot of those out there. <laughs> so she gets arrested. Someone gets arrested for stealing something. Right. Say they're hungry and they go to the store and they steal food. OK, well, when that person can't make bail and they sit in jail for six, seven months at a time waiting for trial, everybody loses. So now. They don't have to put up a cash bond. They couldn't afford the food. They're not going to afford a a bond, right? So they get out and then they go into an intervention program, something like RED. And this is why we teach kids the importance of understanding who's running. A lot of the kids in our program, you ask them, who's the quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons? And they'll tell you, Matt Ryan. We love him. Great. What number does he wear? Two. How long has he been in the league? Ten years. Great. All right. Who's the district attorney overseeing your case? Quiet. Nothing. Yeah. And those are the things you need to learn. So have we try to empower them. And then finally, the financial module, which is the most important, because one thing I never understood about high schools, and I always say, in order for us to have meaningful criminal justice reform, we need to have educational reform. We're teaching kids how to make cookies, but we don't teach them how to buy the ingredients or how to fill out a resume or fill out a job mm-hmm. application or have interview skills mm-hmm. or how to open up a bank account. And, you know, a lot of these kids, they don't have these skills simply because their parents didn't have bank accounts or they're working blue collar labor jobs. And so it makes it difficult. The cliff effect. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the cliff effect, Mm -hmm. but that's a big deal. Cliff effect is um, something when people are below the the, the poverty line, let's just say you're making 15 bucks an hour. So you're making 15 bucks an hour. You're here. You qualify for state assistance. Right. So you get housing and food based on your income. Now, if you do a stellar job at work and all of a sudden you get a promotion and you get to $18 an hour, hypothetically speaking, um, (laughs) now all of a sudden you're no longer eligible for these state funded services. So those extra three bucks an hour sound great on paper, but they take you away from this. They don't teach these things in high school. They need to teach these things in high school. Yeah, teach like geometry and algebra two. And let me tell you how many times I've used algebra Mm. two. They got calculators nowadays (laughs) on your phone. Yeah, and Alexa. And Alexa, that's right. (laughs) Siri, all of them. Siri, Alexa. You can make her sound like a Brit and she'll give you all the answers you need. But that's the key. And so at the end, once we're done, um, we restrict their record. We clean up their record so that way they can go out and get a job. Or if they want to go into the service, we help them get into service. Or if they want to go into vocation, we help them get into vocation. So, again, it's not a one size fits all. Yeah, it's like, right. what can we do for these individuals? Right. And the last thing on the program, what you say, the resources, we use a fraction of what it costs to prosecute people. To give you an example, we service about 25 people a year, and that cost is about $60,000 a year. Okay. To prosecute one person and incarcerate them and lock them up is almost the equivalent of the cost that we use to in our restorative justice mm-hmm. system. 
which is shocking. Yeah. And so, you know, you're in a conservative area of the country, so you have to appeal to certain people by saying, look, the way we're spending money doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. If we start spending it this way, we increase the amount of taxpayers, we stimulate the economy, and everybody wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. I love it. I mean, I'm kind of just like mind blown right now. I, I felt like we all have 24 hours in a day <laughs> and I'm not doing enough. I, we, I think we all <laughs> When feel I like hear that. this. Yes, I know. Um, so, but you're obviously juggling a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, between your book and um, Red and the law firm. Um, how do you balance that? I'm sure you have a personal life too. Sure. Um, do you just like shut off at some point at night or are you one of those yeah, like, ever stop? like my business partner's up, she's working at 2 a.m. She cannot mm-hmm. turn it off. Um, I've learned to create some balance, um, even if it's just downtime, quiet time. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah. I, I burnt out before and it's not a fun feeling when you're so excited about something, but you've worked so hard that you spread so thin that you can't be productive. Yeah. And so, you know, these things happen to all of us. And I think it's just life is a learning opportunity. And I had to learn that burning out is not going to help me produce the results I want. So to answer your question, the way I find balance is just trying to do the best that I can within a certain number of hours. So I tell myself today I'm working nine to six. And during those hours, I will stay focused on work. I don't get on social media. I don't start texting people. I don't do any of that stuff. I focus because I understand that I'm not going to get those hours back. And there are timelines that I have to meet. But um, that's a good rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like that. I just I put the phone be better on. at that. Mm-hmm. No social media at work. Social media <laughs> is my work. And the thing is, like, social media is great because it helps people um, expose ideas or you know, make connections, but if you don't use it properly, it'll stupefy you. Oh yeah. Right. right. You'll sit there and you just kind of waste hours watching videos. Scrolling. Yeah. Yeah. Scrolling. Mm-hmm. And then you're like three people deep in Aaron Carter's like ex-girlfriend's dog's <laughs> Instagram. And so we know, know your IQ you can't go anywhere, but your IQ might go lower if you stay on there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just and that's how I I don't know. I do it like that. I and plus Here's the other thing, right? This is going to sell and sound sappy as well. I'm living my dream. This is what I dreamed about. This is I dreamt of this. I I saw myself doing these things, and now I get to wake up and feel these things and, and do them for real. So it's kind of like it would be a slap in the face of everyone who's helped me along the way, including God, if I didn't do the best that I could. And so I can sleep when I need to sleep. That'll be, I guess, when, when you're dead. Yeah, when I'm dead. When I'm, when I'm in a pine box at six feet of dirt. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with David Windicher on Take the Edge Off. And we're back on Take the Edge Off with David Windicher. So now is our kicker question segment, which is my personal favorite. Because Sounds fun. Oh, this is a great section, segment, section, segment. It's going to be a great time. Okay. So the first question is my favorite question. All right. How would your best friend describe you? My best friend, um, loyal, loyal. Um, there's a ghetto, uh, slogan death before dishonor. And, um, that's how I am. If I'm your friend, I am really your friend. I'm loyal. I have loyalty has burned me before, but that's what I think most people will say that I'm loyal. Um, now I feel like I'm pounding my chest cause I'm about to pull another one out. Um, compassionate. I think people would say, and, um, 
I don't know, a well-to-doer. Yeah. Which I kind of like that my best friend would say. I'm not sure who my best friend is because I don't I have a small circle. I was going to ask who, if you like thought of someone particular. Well, my head. best friend, uh, you know, when everybody, when anybody asks me, who are you closest to? It's someone that I haven't been close to for a long time, but I was close to them when we were growing up. His name is Joey Torres. He did 15 years incarcerated. Um, once I got out of the gang, he couldn't get out. He had two kids. He had to keep making money and he ended up getting caught with a firearm and he got 15 years. He just got out in September of last year, so we we're, re we're reconnecting now. And um, he was always my best friend, and I I consider him more like family than anything. Yeah, he's a brother to me. Oh, yeah. bestie, love. Okay, what is your favorite quote or saying or like mantra of the moment? Do you have one? Something that you're like, oh, this is my two -oh. words to live oh, by. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. I have I have two. The one that that withstood time with me that I heard in long, long time ago, 20 years ago or so, um, is if you always do what you've always done, you will always get what you always got. And I remember, wow, you know, that's so true. If I keep, if I stay on the corner selling drugs, I'm going to keep getting arrested. If I keep packing guns, I'm going to end up getting a shootout, live by the gun, die by the gun, you know? All of those things, if you always do what you always done, you always get what you always got. And so I think I try to reinvent myself and who I am, and how I'm learning things and what I'm applying them to. And so that always stood out to me. And then, you know, I've been blessed with an opportunity to do a lot of um, presentations nationwide. And I usually open up with I'm not what happened to me. I am who I chose to be or I'm not what happened to me. I am what I became or how does it go on? I don't know why what I God right made now. you to be. It's a, the reason why I'm trying to get it right is because um, it's the philosopher that said that quote and I use it. Um, I'm not what happened to me. I am what I chose to become. That, yeah, that's what I, I say. You know, I not what happened to me. I am what I chose to become. And I tell people who I am now. And I tell them the unconventional path that I was on to get to where I am. And usually people are engaged when they hear yeah. that. No excuses. Like you everybody. guys have editing, so that way you can edit those five times I try to get that right. Nope. No, oh, so we're just gonna let it roll. Unfiltered. We're just gonna let it roll. <laughs> roll so people roll. can know that you're like not perfect. <laughs> oh, that yeah. not that, but yeah. <laughs> mm, that's funny. Okay, what advice would you give your 15 year old self? Don't do anything different. Ah. Unfortunately. I think a lot of people would judge me because some of my arrests continue to happen up to the age of 19. But the reality is that all of these things that happened were part of the natural progression that God had me on in order to become the man I am today to carry out the preordained destiny that he wanted for me. And so the reason I can work in recidivism, the reason I am a voice for restorative justice, the reason I'm a criminal defense attorney, the reason I wrote out a book that helps other people is because I went through all those things. So I wouldn't do anything differently. What I would say um, that I would try to change is the pain that I caused my parents because they didn't deserve that. And, um, you know, you even hear it in my voice, it still gets me that um, there was times that I looked at my mom and I was like, that's not right. I got to do something better than that. I can't keep letting her go through these kind of things, you know? So my 15 year old self, I would tell him not to change anything, but uh, maybe just not hurt my parents feelings so much. Like your mama. Yeah. 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 Time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Our next and last kicker question. 
is what is your craziest travel story? Oh my God. <laughs> you don't even want to know. I mean, I can't really tell you. Oh my gosh. This is a crazy story. No, Y'all yeah. can see his face right now. I mean, he's turning the color. He yeah, described I mean, earlier. Cause one, one moment came to mind and, um, what was it? So here we go. Um, she's going to kill me. Emily and I went to Enza Borrega and Enza Borrega is a desert where it's like 120 degrees. So there's no cars on the road, but there's this beautiful backdrop with just kind of crazy mountain scenery and cactuses, every, cacti everywhere. And then there's these sculptures of like dragons. And then you see like one part of the dragon and part of the sand. And then like down the road, you see the other in the head. And so, you know, obviously we took some risque photos out there um, and it was just so fun. I mean, I mean was, <laughs> so you guys to do it too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we couldn't say no to that. I mean, it was just such a, and it was fun. It was such an adrenaline rush. I hope her parents never hear this. Nah. Keep those but, pictures. Yeah. Hidden. The other said, thing, yeah. Yeah. Those are never published. Um, but, and then the other thing that I did that was a lot of fun was, I always say I'll never be able to match the adrenaline that I experienced when I did the show Hunted, which was um, me running, me and Emily running from the FBI for 28 days consecutive. And that in and of itself is um, not even when you were actually running from a real life helicopter. Right. Well, well, nothing. Could, see, that was scary. This was fun. Okay. The, the helicopter right. in real life just scared the crap out of me because I'm thinking, oh, my God, if they catch me, I might not make it to the jail. This is the one that they'll put a bullet oh, in. Oh gosh. But um you know, doing hunted was interesting because it was trying to escape from the most capable hunters in the entire country. You're talking about U.S. Marshals. You're talking about Marines, SEALs, FBI, CIA, White House intelligence folks. And they're trying to find you and they're really good at their job. So the adrenaline we experienced in running from them was amazing. And we escaped the the near capture five times and just that that feeling is just i would do anything to do that again yeah mm -hmm. that's awesome it was a lot a lot of fun a lot of fun and we took every chance you could possibly imagine i mean they told us you won't get arrested you won't get in real trouble and so that's it. You know, they gave me the green light to just do that. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. It's like, they're not giving me the green light. Yeah. My goal was to piss them off, you know, just to let them know, like, you're not going to capture me. There's yeah. no way. Yeah. Um, you have to watch the show to see what happens. I was going to say, you're going to tell anyone, the listeners, no. the end. It's on, uh, it's on, uh, it's called Hunted on CBS and it's on Amazon. And it's on Hulu as well. What year was this? 2017. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A couple of years ago. Actually, I think it aired two years this month. Oh, well, wow. cool. perfect time to watch it. Yeah. So as we are wrapping it up, do you have any final words of wisdom for business owners that may be listening? Sure. Um, for business owners, I would tell them to do something to give back to their community. Um, generating income is great and everything, but impacting someone's life is far more rewarding. And so find a cause and contribute to it. Um, and, you know, if I can say something to other people, those who are getting arrested, they can call me. Um, mm -hmm. I'll help them with their case. If they're interested in learning about my story, they can pick up the American dream on Amazon. And if they're interested in getting involved with recidivism, which is um, the, my life's work, I'm happy to chat to any with anybody that's interested in understanding how it affects our communities, because we need more help. We need more people invested into um, what we're doing. Love it. 
So davidwinditcher.com. Davidwinditcher.com. Sorry, I should probably throw yeah. those out there, yeah. right? Otherwise, no one's going to find me. <laughs> yeah. So there's davidwinditcher.com. That's for the book or on Amazon. Then there is the Winditcher Firm, winditcherfirm.com, which is for my legal practice. And then stoprecidivism.org for red and what we're doing, we're restorative justice. Good luck spelling recidivism. I still have a hard time doing it, but it's stoprecidivism.org. I don't think anybody else has that URL. We'll put this in the profile of the podcast so everyone can click the link in the podcast. Make it super easy for everybody. Cool. Well, Um, ladies, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Take the Edge Off podcast. We hope this gives you some insight into the nitty gritty world of entrepreneurship. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Edge Agency for podcast updates and more about what we're up to.